Welcome to Lonely Cello. Hey there, uh, welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the inner game of tennis. And when I say we, I mean me, or maybe because this is the inner game of tennis, we will be talking myself one to self two about the inner game of tennis. Anyway, all I'm saying is I don't have a guest this time. Um, and rather than being like a book report <laughs> or like a summary um, I think it's really important for each, for teachers actually, teachers and students, to read this book and kind of have the words hit them without being told how to interpret or synthesize this information. Um, this is a book that I read when I was either in high school or just, just getting into uh, college. Um, and this is now only like basically the second time that I have come back to it. And I'm kind of embarrassed by that because it is so useful and so pithy. It's a really, it's just a little slip of a thing, a really, really quick book to read. Um, although I highly recommend uh, the audio book. I got mine on um, Apple Books. Awfully cheap. I feel like it was like 10, 10 bucks there. Goes by really quickly, but the um, the narrator just has a really engaging um, and compassionate voice. So I really appreciated that. Although there is a little tiny bit of like that 70s sexism that we can't really get away with um, now. So for instance, everything is a he gender. And then there are a couple anecdotes about attractive women in there. Um, and it's not that the author is saying these things, but he's recounting stories. Um, so it's not really a content warning, but it's just sort of like, ooh boy, <laughs> I rolled my eyes a little bit. But don't take your eyes off the prize because the actual uh, content of this text is just wonderful and so helpful to both students and teachers. And I really do mean that. It's for students because it helps you understand yourself and it's also for teachers who really want to understand students, but also uh, Galway really does directly address some of the mistakes teachers can make, uh, specifically in terms of things that we say to students, but also over teaching students. Um, so basically to, to sum up what this book is, it's a psychology book and the whole thing hinges around the idea that there are kind of two different and often conflicting sides of ourselves. And he calls it, uh, Galway calls it self one and self two. And so self one is the, the thinker and then self two is the doer. And so the whole pretext of this thing is to to notice and then improve the relationship between these two selves. And the reason why I'm suggesting that you read the original, The Inner Game of Tennis, as opposed to The Inner Game of Music, um, is because I think it's just distilled down better. Um, and also for whatever reason, sometimes I feel like it's sometimes easier to take information that might be 
that might require personal growth and it might challenge you a little bit is sometimes easier to digest when it's not as close to you. So it's like, you know, me always banging on about cello stuff. It can be really easy because we have such well-worn defense mechanisms. But this is a text ostensibly about tennis. And even if you play tennis, we are in this podcast relating it to music. So there's that little buffer there that I think just helps the information wash over um, a lot easier. Um, And part of the reason that I think this is so... The relationship between tennis and music is so easy to make... Um, even if you're playing single, uh, sorry, even if you're playing doubles, tennis is though largely a solitary sport. So very much like even if we're playing in an orchestra, what we do as musicians, most of it is actually done in solitary, right? In our private practice and in our own minds. And tennis is even though now the athletes are just these incredible physical specimens, because that's kind of the natural progression of, you know, human capability. Um, But tennis really is a thinking game. And I don't know if you watch tennis. I am absolutely a tennis-obsessed maniac. Um, And one of the hardest things to watch is a player succumbing to the mental game. Um, And then also when you watch people who are, you know, just titans who do these incredible things. So I'm talking about, you know, Serena and Novak and Federer, um, my favorite player, Michael Chang. um, They were all, when you listen to the commentators, they actually address the inner game all the time. Um, And also you can see some of the workings of their inner game. So for instance, after somebody double faults or they let an opponent who is unranked start scoring points against them, you actually see them go to the baseline and they're bouncing the ball or they're like holding it and they talk to themselves and they say things like, you know, come on, you got this or swing low, swing through, shoulder down. Um, And this is one of the things that's kind of universal in tennis and it's also universal in music so after you are playing through something and you miss the shift and it's like thumb release arm leads and what's interesting with these two things is that both in both cases those words are almost always completely useless um and here we go we're gonna have a little page turn here i apologize for that sound But basically, that thoughts and words in tennis and in music don't get the job done. And you might think, well, what else is there? And that's the point of this book. It's this other stuff that we need to cultivate and become aware of. So without further ado, let's go chapter by chapter and I'm just going to give you little ideas of what it's about and hopefully by the end of this podcast you will feel enticed to read this text yourself. Chapter one, reflections on the mental side of tennis. So mostly what this is is again talking about overthinking and overteaching. So the overthinking is this sort of, well, in the end, tennis is a physical game. 
And so thinking follow through is not the same as following through. And so instead of thinking the thought, what you need to do is actually do it. And that is where the concentration should go. And then overteaching is the same thing. So frequently students of both tennis and music know what they need to do after a while, but teachers, we give more and more detailed instructions. So um, for instance, when a student is having a hard time with, uh, let's say extensions. So I'm going to I mean, I'm going to overteach a lot of the time. I'm going to say, well, what is your thumb doing? And what about pronating your hand? What about not pronating your hand? How is your breath? Where is your shoulder? Let that elbow hang heavy. Maybe you need to put more support through your wrist. Uh, fan out the top of your hand. like, And it's too much for any one person to pay attention to. And instead, what we're looking at is in both, of, for instance, a tennis backswing and in an extension, it's a gesture that happens. And so... What we need to do is get our students to behold themselves, watch the gesture they're making, and then silently in their mind, meaning not overthinking, just notice the difference between where they are and what the gesture is supposed to look like and make that physical change without overthinking, talking to themselves, or kind of going into any kind of judgmental space. Chapter two. The discovery of the two selves. And all that is, is um, over time, Galway was just really realizing that there was this sort of strange and often dysfunctional relationship between the mind and the body. And the mind part is the ego, but also is the, like the judge. And self one the the treatise here is that by and large self one needs to get out of the way and let self two just do the thing chapters three and four are about quote unquote getting it together and chapter three specifically deals with quieting the mind and it's so funny because there's all this talk of mindfulness and meditation and all this stuff and and even then i bet if, if I was going to tell you, this is about mindfulness, um, at least for me, I immediately kind of put my mental dukes up. I'm so tired of paying attention <laughs> to every little thing and trying to find quiet. And what I love about, at least in this book, it's a very low pressure approach. And the, the whole thing about quieting the mind is just about turning down self one and letting go of judgment and judgment is, this is good or this is bad. He says the most important thing is to see your game as it is. And I think that that is incredibly insightful because so many students take what they're doing and they kind of see it, but then bury it under this massive pile of rubble of, um, you know, high or low expectations, previous experiences, negative self-talk. And then there, there's a spot at the end of the chapter that I love how he actually says, don't do positive thinking either. This is actually quite different from Kenny Warner, by the way, if you listen to the, um, to the earlier episode dealing with effortless mastery. But I, I kind of, I like this a whole lot better um, because... The power of quote-unquote positive thinking 
is a judgment in itself. And then it's kind of like this cliff or like a drawbridge, you know, that's opening. And it's like, if you don't make that jump, you fall so far. So instead, it's just, let's just see what this is. Let's see what this is over time and take stock of it. And don't worry about good job, bad job. And he, there's an anecdote in it where he is teaching a class of, of people and they're all working on their, their serves or maybe it's a ground strokes at the baseline. But he noticed that as he was giving people positive feedback, their results got worse. And that's because self one can run crazy interference. And what it does is the ego can distract you from what you're physically doing. And by ego, I just mean this kind of overarching, judgmental, noticing, expectation-driven part of you. And by the way, it's not a bad part of you, but it is in this instance, what we are doing, damaging and distracting. But I always like to say, like, keep that part of you in your back pocket because there is also that ego is responsible for you having standards, for you wanting to do things, for you striving to do better, for admiring things, for for feeling good about things. So it's not that we want to squash that part of you altogether. It's just let's have the option when we are practicing and when we are performing to kind of stow that away because it is really not useful to impose all of this judgment and expectation on what we are trying to accomplish. So chapter four is kind of the second half of the getting it together. Um, And it talks about letting it happen. Um, And so it's about trying without forcing. And so there was a question asked where it's like, well, you know, how can I let my forehand happen if I don't know how to do it? Well, if you think about the way um, a, a child would, or an uninhibited adult, um, would pick up a tennis racket and just try it. And you just have to look at the result. And, you know, did the ball go roughly where you wanted it to go? Did it get over the net? There's a bunch of different kind of ways you can judge whether it was successful. And then if it was not successful, then let yourself learn. And the most important thing about letting yourself learn something is that you develop a clear mental image of the intended result. And then you need to be able to observe what you're doing cleanly, again, without judgment, to then let yourself, just kind of let the things that aren't working fall away from your technique. Um, We're not going to get too much into chapter five because it's called master tips and it is kind of more tennis specific. So we're going to kind of skip over that. But tennis nerds, you know, you're going to want to read that. Um, So for chapter six, um, it talks about changing habits. And I'm going to actually read a little excerpt here um, about the groove theory of habits. And what's funny or interesting about this to me is... I think they're talking about neuroplasticity, but it's just before it was well understood. One hears a lot of talk about grooving one's strokes in tennis. The theory is a simple one. Every time you swing your racket in a certain way, you increase the probabilities that you will swing it that way again. In this way, patterns called grooves build up and have a predisposition to repeat themselves. Golfers use the same term. It is as if the nervous system were like a record disc. 
Every time an action is performed, a slight impression is made in the microscopic cells of the brain, just as a leaf blowing over a fine-grained beach of sand will leave its faint trace. When the same action is repeated, the groove is made slightly deeper. After many similar actions, there is a more recognizable groove in which the needle of behavior seems to fall automatically. Then the behavior can be termed grooved. I mean, it's totally neuroplasticity. Because these patterns are serving a function, the behavior is reinforced or rewarded and tends to continue. The deeper the groove in the nervous system, the harder it seems to be to break the habit. We have all had the experience of deciding that we will not hit a tennis ball or hit a note a certain way again. For example, it would seem to be a simple matter to keep your eye on the ball once you understand the obvious benefits of doing so. But time and again, we take our eye off of it. Often, in fact, the harder we try to break a habit, the harder it becomes. If you watch a player trying to correct the habit of rolling his racket over, he will usually be seen gritting his teeth and exerting all of his willpower to get out of his old groove. Watch his racket. After it hits the ball, it will begin to turn over following the old pattern. Then his muscles will tighten and force it to return to the flat position. You can see in the resulting waiver exactly where the old habit was halted and the new willpower took over. Usually the battle is won only after a great deal of struggle and frustration over the course of some time. It is a painful process to fight one's way out of a deep mental groove. It's like digging yourself out of a trench. But there is a natural and more childlike method. A child doesn't dig his way out of his old grooves, he simply starts a new one. The groove may be there, but you're not in it unless you put yourself there. If you think you are controlled by a bad habit, then you will feel that you have to try to break it. A child doesn't have to break the habit of crawling because he simply doesn't think he has a habit. He simply leaves it. Simply? Ah, we're leaving it in. He simply leaves it as he finds walking an easier way to get around. Habits are statements about the past, and the past is gone. I really, really love that. Um, and I think it's a nice way to think about, about you know habits and things that you want to change. Sometimes I talk to my students about their bad habits or the technique that is developing. It's that whole um, Michelangelo thing. They're like, how did you... Um, you know, how did you manage to carve this tremendous likeness of the human body from this chunk of marble? And uh, I don't know if it's, it's if it's apocryphal or not, but the the retort was, well, I just chipped away everything that wasn't David. And I I kind of tell my students that when they're playing, like you actually have the right technique there. We just need to kind of chip away the things that aren't it. But sometimes what I think that leads to is, again, an overthinking, uh, kind of hypervigilance. And instead, it's difficult, I know, but trying something completely new does tend to um, wreck the quality of the effort for a couple repetitions because it is brand new and you're not a beginner at the old habit. So there's some sort of comfort there and you might even get better results there. But another thing I do stress with my students is it is not... It doesn't mean that you're doing the wrong thing if you don't immediately get better results. What it means is that you're a beginner at the right thing and you just might need a little time to get used to doing it. But that all of your practice with the old habit, it doesn't just go nowhere. It is still informative and you have still been improving at the instrument. You might have just been taking the longer route.
Chapter seven, concentration. Um, this is one that I really want you to read for yourself. But one of the things that I love about this chapter, um, he uses the example of watching the ball, which is kind of the real essence of accuracy in a tennis game. And you know, everything depends on watching the ball, right? Your body positioning, your footwork, everything, because the ball is the point of the game. So there are several things that kind of are the ball for musicians, right? There's like left and right hand technique, there's, you know, ear stuff, there's all kinds of stuff. But um, one of his tips that I just think is great, he's like, I know this sounds silly, but you should learn to love the ball. Like you should really hold it in your hand a lot. You should um, feel, like feel that fuzzy texture. You should you should get to know the sound of the ball and kind of how the seams go. Look at the different colors, right? There's orange and kind of pale green. There's darker green. Um, and I think that there is a lot to, first of all, really letting yourself fall in love with and be curious about the, the physical instrument, the bow, the, the fingerboard, the, I just spent so much time, I think, I mean, being in orchestra rehearsals as a little kid was really useful because we had to sit there and be quiet, you know, while they're working with other sections. And I just remember like looking at the fingerboard and noticing like, does the fingerboard need planing? Look at the grooves here, look at the grain here and holding my bow in my hand and kind of bouncing it in my hand and really feeling the way that the weight of the tip could feel different depending on like how much I turned my wrist or where I put my fingers. And then it's kind of fun to, as I would play, I had all of these physical things to sort of search out in my time playing. And having a strong sense of physical awareness when you play, to me, that is what stills my mind and allows me to concentrate. So I, I am known for telling my students to have physical goals and in order to make sure you're accomplishing those, you need to have physical awareness. And it turns out that if you are chasing after a physical goal, it has a natural propensity to quiet the mind because it is an incredibly, um, it just consumes a lot of the horsepower in your brain. And so it's really hard to have these invasive other thoughts. I mean, I can do it because my mind is happy to ping pong all over the place, but really, I have to say, compared to where I was even, I don't know, 15 years ago, my mind is just much quieter and much more able to cultivate that kind of concentration. And my practice is much more effective than it was. And I'm doing probably half of it that I was, and I'm still making the same kind of gains. So that chapter on concentration, I think is just a beautiful read. Again, it's very quick, but, um, uh, I would love to actually hear some of your reflections after reading that chapter. The last three chapters are called Games People Play on the Court, The Meaning of Competition, and The Inner Game Off of the Court, where the idea of self three is actually introduced. Um, they are useful and valuable, but they are not quite as prescient, I don't think, for us um, in terms of relating it exactly to music. And again, I cannot stress this enough, the inner game of music is not as good as this book. It's just, it just doesn't have the same kind of teeth to it. So um, I absolutely adore this book, uh, warts and all. Um, and it's just a wonderful reminder to 
I don't know. It's, it's more than a reminder. It's a bolster to all of the learning that you've already done, but it helps. I think as soon as you've read it, like information and lessons and learning and teaching hit a little bit differently when you've got this kind of stuff in mind. Um, and so I hope that this is a gentle encouragement to go and read it. And we will have, I think our next podcast is going to be another discussion about like what is, I'm changing the the vibe a little, but I did the first one with Jeremy about what is a, a professional musician anyway. And we're going to, on this next one, it's more like, well, who is a real musician? Because professional and real, it's like they're kind of interchangeable, but there are definitely people who are considered real musicians who don't really, you know, there's no income that they gain from it and all that good stuff, blah, blah. Anyway, so um, we're going to have that with um, with my friend Carrie Ann Suter, um, fabulous flute player and just tremendous uh, voice actress. Um, so that's what we got next time. Um, hope you enjoy this. You can always reach me at contact at emilywright.net. Uh, you can check out the website, emilywright.net. It's about to get completely revamped and it will look unrecognizable, hopefully, uh, in like if you're listening to this in May, hopefully the change will already have happened. Um, and I'm on Instagram at emilywrightcello and I'm emily, <laughs> emily cello on Twitter. That's staying in. We're doing this as a one take. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Bye.